Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys. Let's pray together and then we'll open God's word together. Father, it is good to sing your praises and we've just declared to you. I pray that you've heard from the bottom of our hearts that we know that you will reign victorious, that you have purchased through the blood of your son a victory over sin and death. And we need to be reminded of that today, Father, because I was just thinking this week, and you know as you and I were talking, just thinking about what different conditions so many of us come to this place in. Make us mindful of that. Some of us are really hurting. Some of us are fearful. Some of us are overjoyed right now. Some of us are physically ill, encountering relational strife. And so, Father, it's a weighty thing that we do when we come to your word to let it instruct us and teach us. And we need to be balm to our souls. Some of us need that balm today, comfort from your word. So, Father, would you comfort your people with your word? Some of us need to be convicted, moved back into righteous ways, righteous paths. And we pray that you would do that and that we would not resist you in that. Some of us need that. Would you do it today by the power of your spirit? And Father, today as we look at your word and the commands that you have for us, they're commands we want to obey, but I'm reminded, Father, that we really don't have any hope of obeying unless we know that you love us. We need to love you, and the only hope of loving you is that we would know that you loved us first. And so we pray that you would remind us of that. Even as we receive commands from your word, may we be reminded that those commands come from a loving Father. May we know that we're loved so that we would love in return, so that we would obey and that our lives would be filled with joy in the, in the obeying. We pray that you make it so today, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name, for your sake. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're continuing our series in 2 Corinthians. And while you're flipping there, I'll just say, Steve was just talking about our students. And I just want to say how thankful I am for our student ministry. What a phenomenal job that they do with our middle and high school students. And I, what I love most is things like Foodless, Foodless Feast, which they do multiple things like that. But what I love about that is that they are so intentional about instructing the hearts of our students to love the things of God and the things that he cares about, to teach them to care about those things. They're not a ministry that's just looking to get behaviors lined up. Do you know that that's kind of a waste of time? As a church, really cradle to grave, we're not interested in just being a church that teaches people how to behave well. We're interested in, in causing people's hearts to swell with affection and commitment to Jesus. And when that happens, we believe right action happens as a result. But we want to be a church that cares about the heart, not just of our students, but about every single one of us. And so I love that our students set the example for us of what it looks like to be a ministry that cares about the hearts of our students, shaping those hearts to care about the things God cares about, things like food scarcity in our world. And so I hope you'll support them. Um, let me also mention, as you're still, um, you've probably already turned to Second Corinthians by now, but one more thing I wanted to mention, I just wanted to make mention of this. Last week we took that offering for the maintenance building and I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an update and just say thank you to you guys. Again, I continue to be astonished by your generosity as your pastor. So last week you guys gave $73,800 towards the maintenance building. So I'm, you know, just, yeah. You're applauding yourselves. So, I mean, I, first, first I wasn't sure what to do with that. I was like, I guess we can applaud it, you know. Now, let me just say thank you to you because of that. Now, our goal is 121000 to really finish out that maintenance building. Uh, so you guys were incredibly generous last week. I did want to bring it up again this week so that you knew that as a report, but also by way of saying if you've been considering giving or praying about giving and just haven't had a chance to yet, just know that the fund will be open until we reach that final goal. And so we just wanted you to be aware that that's there. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let's look at it. And as you're 
before we read, here's what I want to say. I, I'd imagine that you felt as I felt. It was a tumultuous week in the life of our country last week. Do you guys feel that? Absolutely. It continues to be tumultuous. And um, I'll say the most obvious thing about that. Here's the most obvious thing that could be said about all the events of the election that transpired is that we are a deeply divided country. We're divided along lines of race. We're divided along socioeconomic lines. We're divided urban and rural. And if you didn't know that already uh, and you needed sort of like empirical proof, you got it on Tuesday, right, about how deeply divided we were and where our votes went and what happened. And, and so I just want to say this then. As you turn to our text today, it's a text about what does it look like to be ministers of reconciliation. And I think it's a very timely one because as we look at chapter 6, what Paul is talking about is how do you take up this task of helping people or helping the gospel get a hearing in a culture and in a place where people are mistrusting and skeptical. And I would say those are two adjectives that define our culture pretty well. Mistrusting and skeptical and at times for good reasons. And so I want to say this. Now, as we turn to the text, the, the question that's going to drive us is how do we gain a hearing for the gospel in a context like the one in which we live? What does it take to gain a hearing? Now, before we even launch into any of the points of the text, one of the things that we need to be reminded of, church, is that we have a job that is bigger than, than governance. It's bigger than you know, fixing problems in education. It's bigger than any of those things. And it's that we would call people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That that is our primary agenda. And that's not to say that the kingdom of God does not involve issues of governance uh, and election. It's not to say that the kingdom of God doesn't involve and make its way into all the nuances of our world and culture. It does, and it must, ultimately, to be a kingdom that is extended into all the places that God intends it to be extended. But that doesn't happen apart from people being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so that always must be the church's first primary agenda. It's an issue of priority. Do you know that? That our priority as a church, as a people, must always be to see people reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. God's kingdom always extends there first and foremost. I like the way Chuck Colson used to say it, a hero in the faith. Chuck Colson used to say, uh, the kingdom of God will never arrive on Air Force One. That's probably a good reminder for us today. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 13. So again, the primary question, how do we gain a hearing for the gospel at a time when people are skeptical and untrusting? Tell you what, I'm just going to read a couple verses at a time. We're going to take it piece by piece today rather than read all 13 at once. So let's look at the first two verses. The first part says this, working together with him then, him is God in this context, working together with God then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul starts, and he's picking up on this same idea that he had in chapter, the end of chapter 5. If you were here last week, we talked about this job description that we've been given as followers of Jesus, ministers of reconciliation, that God is intent upon reconciling a people to himself. And one of the evidences we looked at for that was that he has intended for every person he reconciles to himself to become a what? A reconciler, one who reconciles others. In other words, he is amassing an army of people to see people get reconciled to him. That every single person who is reconciled is meant to then reconcile others. And that's what Paul is talking about right here at the beginning of chapter 1. When he says, therefore, we're working with God. Working towards what? Towards what he was talking about in chapter 5. Being, seeing people reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, because that's the case, because we're meant to help people get reconciled to God, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Now, that should prompt a question from us. What would it look like to receive the grace of God in vain? What what does that mean? Is he saying that we would one day believe it and then the next day not believe that we have the grace of God and therefore that would be in vain? In this context, that's not what he's talking about. What Paul is talking about is this. Paul does not have a category in his mind for the person who would receive the grace of God, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and then not participate in helping others be reconciled. Who would receive that gift and then hoard it to themselves as if they weren't meant to then share it with others. You guys follow that? That category doesn't exist for Paul. He's saying that that would be to take the grace of God in vain. That doesn't make any sense to me. He says, this is the job that you've got. Be a minister of reconciliation. Otherwise, you've received the grace of God in vain because it's not really, you haven't really received the true grace of God if you haven't then become someone who recognizes that you have been called to help others receive the same thing that you have received. That's what he means in verse one when he says, because we have this ministry, because we have this command from God, be ministers of reconciliation, Therefore, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Then he goes on to say this. For he says, so in other words, because that's the case, Corinthians, that I don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain, because that's the case, I say to you, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Okay, now, if you notice in your Bible, if you've got your Bible with you, that's sort of in quotes, or it's like in a different, uh, they've put it together, separated it, because it's a quote. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And what he's quoting is a a passage where Isaiah is saying to the nation of Israel, uh, on behalf of God, God is going to deliver you from Babylon. They were in exile in the, amongst the nation of Babylon. You guys are here for the Daniel series. Anybody here for the Daniel series? Daniel was living in exile in Babylon. So if you're here for that, we discussed a lot about what that life would have been like for the nation of Israel. You know it would have been uh, their greatest longing to return to their home, to Jerusalem, to the land of Israel that God had promised them. And so Isaiah is coming along before that event occurs and you say, oh, I've got great news. God is declaring to you that it is the time of his favor that it is the day of salvation. You are going to be rescued and redeemed from the nation of Babylon. You're going to be brought back to your home. And the nation would have rejoiced. It would have been fantastic. So you think, well, why is Paul quoting that here? Because Paul is doing what Paul often does. He takes Old Testament prophecies and he sees that their primary fulfillment or their first fulfillment, I should say, was the nation of Israel or some other entity in that specific historical context. But that their ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. So he says, Isaiah said this to you, nation of Israel, I'm gonna deliver you from Babylon. Today is the day of my salvation and my favorable time. But I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this idea of the favorable time of the Lord, of the day of salvation. And so he says this at the end of verse two. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, I'm gonna quote Isaiah to you, Corinthians, and then I'm gonna, on the backside of that, say, by the way, this scripture from Isaiah is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that I can say, now is the favorable time. Not then when they were delivered from Babylon. That was an earthly salvation that was a foretaste, a forerunner of the kind of salvation that was going to come in Jesus Christ. And I'm declaring to you that God's ultimate salvation has now come in Jesus so that I can say that Isaiah's prophecy is truly fulfilled now because Jesus has come and died on the cross and risen from the grave. Now, here's what that means for us. 
Here's what that means for us. If you've got your sermon notes, you'll notice the first point says this. If we're gonna be great ministers of reconciliation in an age of mistrust and division and skepticism, then we're gonna have to remember the time in which we are living. Now, how many of you often, you don't have to raise your hands, but just think through this, you think sort of in a defeated sense about the time in which we live. You think, man, we live in an ungodly culture. Man, we live in a tough time to, to follow God. People make it difficult, right? We, we live in a time that it feels like we're moving away from the things of God, not towards them. And while all that may be true, if we're going to be good ministers of reconciliation, great ministers of reconciliation, then we're gonna have to remember that this is still true. Because what Paul is saying is every day, from the day Jesus Christ died and rose to the day he returns is now the day of salvation, the year of the Lord's favor. We are living in the favorable time of the Lord. We are living in the day of salvation. No matter what it may look like to you, from our earthly perspective, from the Lord's perspective, we are living in the day of his favor. Why? Because we know how a person can be reconciled to God and his name is Jesus. We don't live as they did in the Old Testament where they had to guess and wonder, I know I need a savior, but how will that happen? What will his name be? What will it look like? And how will he accomplish salvation? They didn't know. They had ideas. They had prophecies. But then to some degree, they were looking forward by faith and wondering what would come. We know what came. We look back at that. And friends, we live at a time where there is still opportunity to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. We live in a day now where there is opportunity for anyone who would come anyone who would respond to come and receive the grace of God and be reconciled to God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. When he comes again, that day will come to an end. There will be no more opportunity. The opportunity is now. The day of salvation is today. You follow me? Friends, I promise you, if you want to take up the work of reconciliation and not receive the grace of God in vain, as verse one says, then you need to believe and have great hope stirred in your heart from the fact that you live, according to Paul, now in the day of the, of the Lord's favor, now in the day of salvation. You with me? All right, so let's move on then. That's verses one and two. Remember the time in which we are living. Now with that truth in mind, he moves on to say in verses three and four, he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he, you'll see a, a colon there because he's now going to describe all the ways that he essentially says, our ministry is a valid ministry. Here's how you can know that we're trustworthy, mistrusting world, mistrusting society. Here's, how you can, here's what marks us as authentic and genuine. He says this, Commend ourselves in every way, but by great endurance, oh sorry, every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. So he begins, and the first thing he says is for those who are going to be ministers of reconciliation in an age of skepticism, the first thing that you must do is live a life of sacrifice. That's what he's saying in verse four and five. Now, this has been a theme throughout the book, so it's probably no surprise that it's coming up again. And the encouragement I would give to you is this, is if God is bringing up this idea of sacrifice and suffering and difficulty again and again as we move through the book, then it's probably because he recognizes that we need to hear it, what? Again and again, right? We let the frequency with which God brings up a subject determine how often we talk about it, not how often we want to talk about it, because I would avoid this one, if, just to be quite honest. 
right? Who wants to talk about suffering and difficulty and persecution? Nobody wants to talk about that. But the reality is God has said, look, if you're going to be a minister of reconciliation, then you need to live a life of sacrifice. Now notice three categories of sacrifice, of hardship that he mentions in this passage. In fact, it's divided. There are nine things that he says there in that list in verses four and five, and it's three, three, and three. The first three are difficulties, hardships that we encounter just by virtue of living in a broken world. Cancer, sickness, our our bodies kind of aching and falling apart. Just the difficulty that comes with living in a broken world. He talks about afflictions and hardships. He just, look, it's hard. It's hard. We live in the world and there's aches and there's pains and there's difficulty. I was talking to some of you this morning before we ever got started about that reality in your life. The second type of hardship, sacrifice he talks about from following Jesus is not just the hardships that come with living in a broken world, but it's the persecution that comes with living for Jesus Christ because people don't necessarily like the the news that there is only one way to be reconciled to God. In our culture, we want many ways. We want to argue that there should be many ways. Yet God tells us there's one way. And when you have that message on your lips, there is a price to be paid for declaring that message. And so whether it's in terms of the amount of cultural power you're able to have or whatever it may be, there is a price to be paid with declaring that message. And so he says, look, we not only endure the hardship of just living in a broken world, we endure the hardship of persecution for the sake of the gospel. And the last thing he says is not just those two types of difficulty, but also them, the hardships, look at them because I want to read them to you find my place here. So he says, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, right? And then he says, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Those last three are essentially costs that are paid in in the realm of self-discipline for those who follow Jesus. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you are going to deny yourself certain pleasures in the world so that you would learn to treasure the things of heaven more than the things of the world. There is a self-denial, not just for self-denial's sake, but for treasuring Jesus more that every believer must take into their life. We make fasting a regular part of our life. We deny ourselves certain purchases because we recognize that money is better spent on supporting other causes that are kingdom causes, right? We deny ourselves certain things that perhaps we could have if we didn't follow Jesus, but because we follow him, we gladly lay them down and we say, no, I won't partake of that. Because we don't want to let anything into our life that causes us, that tempts us to treasure the things of the world more than we treasure the things of God. And so we deny ourselves the things of the world. Not in this aesthetic sort of like, uh, we just are all about self-denial all the time. No creature comforts. Not in that sort of a sense. But in the sense that we say, anything that challenges my affections for Jesus, I will lay it down. I will put it away. Because he is better. He is more. He is worth it. So those are three types of hardships that Paul is talking about are endured by by followers of Jesus. And they are real hardships. And I want to say, friends, as you endure those, I'm I'm not deaf to the reality or blind to the reality that even as I say that, many of you are enduring those things right now. You are enduring them right now. And I want to say to you that God is with you. He's for you, not against you. He is able to give comfort. He's able to give comfort. But what he wants from you is that you would endure your persecutions and your hardships with a deep and abiding, not a silly, but a deep and abiding joy in him so that he is seen as a great treasure. When your body aches and grows ill 
and you say, but I treasure Jesus and I will follow him wherever he calls, regardless of the difficulty, you show him to be a great treasure. He desires to glorify himself in your hardship. He can, he will, and he will bring a great comfort. Now let's not be, let's not be um, trite about suffering as if it's something that we should just sort of go, oh, yay, so give it to him, give me suffering. That's silliness. That's silliness. But when it comes, when it comes, right? We're not talking about grandiose acts. We're talking about daily deaths. A thousand small daily deaths to the things of the world, to the the suffering that comes to the followers of Jesus. And I want to encourage you, church, listen. If a world is mistrusting and skeptical of the things of God in Jesus Christ, do you know what will win their heart? A people who is willing to pay a cost for the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. Doesn't it do that to you when you see someone who pays a great cost for something they believe in? Perhaps. It's worth considering. It's a question we must all ask ourselves again and again and again throughout life. Not just once, but you must regularly come back to this question. I must and you must. If the gospel has very little power when it comes out of my mouth, perhaps it's because I have paid very little cost. The gospel carries power from you when there is a cost associated with it in your life. Please, Please, friends, do not run from it. Do not run from the cost of the gospel. Do not run from your hard marriage. Pay the cost of working through the difficulty so that people would know that your marriage is about Jesus, not about you. And they would see the sustaining power of Jesus to bring health to a marriage that is hard. The world leaves and runs and it's, you don't look any different and Jesus doesn't look any better when you do the same. Stay in it and fight. I say that I know, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I don't say that. Please don't hear me say that as if it's, I think it should just be easy and with a few Eloquent words, you should just overcome the difficulty. It will be excruciating. But Jesus will look great. Your marriage, your friendships, your parenting, all of it exists so that Jesus would be treasured. All of it, every bit, every moment. It exists so that people would be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. If you have hardship in parenting, if you have hardship in marriage, you have that as an opportunity for the sake of the gospel. And I want to encourage you, stay in it. Stay in it. The second thing you need, a world that is skeptical, to be a minister of reconciliation is found in verses 6 and 7. The way we say it around this church is to be rather than to appear to be. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. After pointing out all the hardships, now he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech. 
In other words, what he's done is he's graduated now from saying, look, here's how we commend ourselves. We commend ourselves to you through all the hardships we've endured for the sake of the gospel that should melt your heart towards us and towards the message of reconciliation. We're now graduating from that to move on to talking about the character we possess, that we are who we appear to be. Now, let me make sure I clarify that because whenever we say that around here, it's possible to be a jerk and then just appear to be a jerk. That's not what we're talking about, okay? Authenticity, you can be an authentic jerk. That's not what we're after. When we talk about being rather than appearing to be as a church, what we mean is this, friends, is the number one assault that people like to make at the church is that we are a bunch of hypocrites, okay? And all, far too often, they are correct when they say it. We aim as a church to not just appear to be godly, but to be godly. Not just to have the appearance of godliness, but to actually possess it. Now, when I say that, look, friends, don't hear me say when I say that, that that means that we have all got our act together because the Lord knows that ain't true. Okay, friends, if you're here and you're checking out faith and you're wondering, well, can I even be a part of this? Because they're all talking about like having this sort of deeply rooted godliness and like, are they all that way? And I'm not, we are not that way. But we wanna be a people who fight to be that way. And we'd love for you to join us. Look, if you feel like you're a mess, you are in the right place. Okay? You are in the right place. But we want to be a people who don't just sort of say, I mean, we just, you encounter those people every day, don't you? Who just say things that sound good, say things that sound right, say things that sound weighty, but have nothing behind them. We want to be people who are going after God with everything we've got so that people, when they see our flaws, they're like, yeah, that person just really is a sinner. I mean, they're just a mess. But they seem really sincere in wanting to go after the things of God. And I watch them, change, like when they do something wrong, they, they ask forgiveness, they humble themselves, and then they actually try and do something different the next time. Wouldn't that be remarkable? That's what Paul is saying. He's pointing out his godly character. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is, look, this is who, this is who I am. I'm honest. My speech is trustworthy. I don't say one thing and do another. And it, look, if we live in an age of mistrust, then we're gonna have to be people who don't just appear to be something. We're gonna have to actually be it. To be found, to be people of substance who through and through love Jesus and follow him. Make our mistakes and ask for forgiveness, but strive hard after the things of God. Not show up at church on a Sunday. Play the part of Christianity raise our hands, sing our songs, listen to our sermon, and then go home and cheat on our spouse or cheat on our taxes or cheat at school or treat our neighbor like a complete jerk. We must be people who let the implications of the gospel flow through our lives. Somebody say amen, please. Amen. All right, good. Now, I'll say one more thing about that and then we're gonna go to the next one little church history lesson that we need to make sure we take stock of. Throughout church history, um, the church, when I say the church, I mean all the people of God and the institutions of the church. The church has fallen in love with power at different periods in its existence. And when it has fallen in love with power more than it's fallen in love with Jesus, it has always aligned itself with people in positions of power who lack godly character. And every time it has done that, it has sacrificed its own godliness it has sacrificed its own godliness for the sake of power in the culture at large. The irony of that is the very thing that affords the church power is its godly character. 
So in the name of cultural power, we have given up true and real power whenever we've done that. My friends, we cannot, we should not, we shall not lay down godly character for the sake of power in the world. It's not right. Here's what Paul says. Listen to how he says it. Verse 8 now, or verse 7, he says, By truthful speech, and, this is, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And what's he talking about there? The weapons of righteousness. What he's talking about, he says, look, power and the weapons of righteousness. What he's saying there is the, the strength, the, the ability to fight the weapons, right, that come with righteousness poured into a life. When you live a righteous life, you have power. Power is afforded to you and brought into your life by being righteous according to the standard of God. When you lay down your righteousness, you lay down your power. It's an important thing for the church to remember at all times. Now, number four is this. I put it in your notes as this. Steal your nerves I'll tell you what I mean by that. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And here's what Paul is doing. He's pressing into the paradoxes of the Christian life. And he's saying, look, Here's the great irony. We just said we need to be rather than appear to be. Possess actual godly character. But the funny thing about that is when you possess actually godly character, to the, to the world looking on from the outside, it doesn't look great. It looks like something they don't want. Now, not honesty and integrity. I'm not saying that. But the things that he's mentioning here, he's saying, look, we appear as poor, but we are actually as rich as can be, and we're making others rich. We appear to be sorrowful because we have this profound sense that things are not the way they should be. And so we move through life, as Jesus was described, a man of sorrows. It's not this sort of like morose sorrowfulness, but there's this deep and weighty sense to looking around and recognizing that God is yet to redeem all this. And he says, we appear as that, but actually we're rejoicing we look one way to the world when in actuality we're another. We look weak when in actuality we are strong, right? He's pointing out those paradoxes. And what he's essentially saying to us is this. Friends, recognize that if you're going to follow Jesus and be a minister of reconciliation, you will be misunderstood. You will be misunderstood. And you will need to steal your nerves to be misunderstood because it's hard to stand against the waves of cultural pressure when they come, when they misunderstand that something they would say is hateful that you've done when you've actually done it out of love. When they would say, how dare you deny me my rights or my privileges that I want by telling me that that is against the will of God. We will be misunderstood that's what Paul is getting at. The world will see us in one perspective and we will actually be another thing. It just comes with it. Now you might think, well, okay, so that's great. We're gonna be misunderstood, great news. Um, but what am I supposed to do with that? Like in what way does that help me become a minister of reconciliation in a, dis, in a mistrusting and skeptical society or culture? Well, I, I, I've pondered that this week and here's the best answer I think I can give you is one, 
maybe the only answer I can really give you is if you know you're going to be misunderstood, then you, as I put in the title of the section, you steal your nerves for that. So you're prepared for it and you're not shocked when it happens. So that rather than needing, feeling a need to retreat when you're misunderstood, you can stay engaged, stay in the game and stay in the conversation. It makes all the difference in the world what your expectations are, right? Anyone who's been through like marriage, uh, premarital counseling stuff like 101 knows that you end up talking a lot about what? Expectations, right? And clarifying expectations so that when you think one thing, your spouse thinks another, you learn how to communicate through those things because you recognize that when expectations get frustrated, right? Someone, how many, who had expectations this morning that got frustrated or disappointed? Right, like I thought this was gonna happen or that was, I thought my kids were gonna get in the car without screaming their heads off. That didn't happen, right? I thought my spouse was gonna have breakfast in bed for me. That didn't happen for any of us. Because we all thought the other one was getting up to do it and no one got breakfast in bed, right? When you have expectations and then they don't happen, that's one of the hardest things, right? Same thing is true with being misunderstood. If you know you'll be misunderstood by the culture at large, you know you will be, then you, then you prepare yourself for it. And you can also, friends, learn how to engage in the conversation in a more helpful way. Because to say that we'll be misunderstood is not to say that we'll be perpetually misunderstood, always, is to say that we begin from a place of being misunderstood. And if we'll stay in the conversation quite often, we can explain why the, what we perceive, what the world perceives as weakness is actually strength to us. Right? Our friends who are not followers of Jesus, they're not, they're not unintelligent. They're able to comprehend the idea. And the Holy Spirit can come and illuminate it. Right? As we pray that he would. So, we steal our nerves. That connects us then to the last thing, this idea of staying engaged. Because it connects us to the final thing that we need to see. And it's this that we need to have a wide open heart if we're gonna be good ministers of reconciliation. Look at verse, just really verse 11. He says, we have spoken freely to you, right? The actual Greek language there is our mouths have been wide open to you, Corinthians. And then he says, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. In other words, what he's saying is, look, we didn't just share words of truth with you. We didn't just let our sort of tongues wag on and on and on. We loved you. Our hearts are open to you. Now remember, this is a group of people who has really assaulted Paul. They, are, they have been difficult for him. They're, they're harming him in some very real ways in terms of his reputation and, and pushing back on him. Well, you're not really all that you claim to be. So there's been this difficulty between he and they. And he says to them in closing his letter, or not closing his letter, but closing this chapter, he says, our heart is, is wide open to you. Now that relates to the idea of being misunderstood that we just talked about because the, the tendency when we're misunderstood or when we're persecuted and when we're pushed back on is that we would just kind of retreat back into ourselves. And church, here's, here's what I wanna say. If we're gonna be ministers of reconciliation, we cannot allow ourselves to grow bitter and angry at the world around us. We cannot allow ourselves to grow bitter and angry at the world around us that does not agree with us about the things that we think represent righteousness and godliness. We cannot we must continue to have our hearts wide open so that they would see a people that's able to love in spite of not being loved in return. Everybody loves those who love them. Remember Jesus saying something like that? You've heard it said, love your, love your friends, right? Love your family. I'm telling you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Anyone can love those who love them in return. Very few can love their enemies. And we have in front of us the example of the one who has done that in perfect excellence, who hung on the cross. And while being hung on the cross for all of our sins, when we were his enemies, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now here's the real, here's the real joy, friends. Because all of these things that I've just told you are commands. They're things that we need to do. Paul is saying, look, be these kinds of ministers of reconciliation. And that's all well and good, but we need more than just a bunch of moral commands to follow. And we need more than just the example of Jesus on the cross because it's, it's one thing to say, oh, there's our perfect example, Jesus Christ. But the cross is not just our good moral example for us to follow where we go, aha, he did it, I'm gonna follow his example. Well, how many of you know you can't just follow the example of Jesus in your own strength? That's not possible. He's perfect. But the real joy is knowing that when he hung on the cross and rose from the dead, he promised to put his spirit inside of us. That means the one who did the very thing that must be done now lives inside of us and makes it possible for us to do that thing. So treasure him. Press into loving him and knowing him and watch him unleash power in your life to do the things he commands you to do. Knowing that the strength that you need to do it is not in you. And it can't be won just by looking at Jesus as your great moral example. You must take in the gospel so that his spirit dwells in you and then pours power out through you. That's your hope. And that's way better than just having a good example, isn't it? He's alive in you, friends. He's alive in you. And he wants to be reconciling people to him through you. So these things we must take seriously. These things that Paul says marked his ministry, the way he commends his ministry to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a great treasure. I pray even now as we're gonna Sing to you, Lord, that you would continue to cause our hearts to just mull over, turn over what we've heard from your word. We pray that your word would have its way with us, that you'd instruct us and teach us. Father, we need you. I pray, Father, I pray that you would make us a church that pursues righteousness. And that the gospel coming from our mouths is filled with power because we've paid a cost for it. And because we have been, not just appeared to be godly, are, are godly. Make us that way. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would have your way with us. Anything in us that resists your truth, put it away. You're strong enough. We pray that you would. May we participate with you in doing so. Now receive praise from us, Father. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.